Good morning, everyone. Anne's unwell today, so I'm standing in for her. But it's my pleasure to offer you all greetings and a very warm welcome and to wish you all a very happy new year. I hope that 2018 is a good one for you all. Um, A special welcome if you're visiting us this morning. Please stay and have a cup of tea or coffee after the service. Everything you need to follow the service, including the words of all the... And a happy new year to anybody I haven't had a chance to greet yet. It's good to be together. And of course, it's a season of coughs and colds and sniffles. So if any of your friends and family are not well, please pass on our love to them. Our call to worship this morning comes from the book of Lamentations. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is God's faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I will hope in him. Our opening hymn this morning is a very old one, but a very appropriate one for the start of a new year. (coughs) Our God, our help in ages past. And if you are able and would like to, you're invited to stand as we sing.
will come to God in prayer. And after I have led us in some guided prayers, then we will say the Lord's Prayer in our own first language and our own most familiar version. So let's pray together. God, who has been with us, not only during the last year, but for all of our lives, we pause on this first Sunday of a new year to offer our thanks and praise for the ways that you have sustained and accompanied us. As we look backwards, no matter how challenging or difficult our year has been, there have been moments of grace, experiences of joy, causes for hope. For these good things that we recall, we are grateful. As we look backwards, no matter how fulfilling or encouraging our year has been, there have been moments of sadness, causes of concern, experiences of regret. The troubling or disappointing things we recall, we relinquish to you now. As we look forwards to a year that lies unspoiled ahead of us, we give you thanks for the opportunities that are ahead of us. New discoveries to be made, lives to be lived, and love to be shared. As we look forwards, even just a few days into the new year, there may already be sadness, regret, concern, anxiety or fear. Such concerns we name in the silence of our hearts, knowing that you listen attentively. We look back, we look forward, but really what matters is the present, the here and now. And so, as your people met in this place, we join our voices with those of countless others in the prayer Jesus taught his followers as we say together, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory, forever and ever. Amen.
Does anybody know who this is? <laughs> right, Jeff? Hindland Station Cat. Anybody know the name of the cat? Yeah, it's Hermes, the Hindland Station Cat. Has anybody seen Hermes, the Hindland Station Cat in real life? A few of us. Okay. Does anybody know the story of Hindland Station Cat? That's right. Hindland Station Cat is a very friendly cat who patrols the grounds of the hospitals at Gart Naval, who has a personal calendar that's raised £1,500 for the Beats and Cancer charity, and who looks after Hindland Railway Station. And although this is a photo of where he was found, um, I have other photos of him at home because I've met him a few times. Oh, Katrina has a photo of him as well. So when he went missing, it sparked a massive hunt. And this is what appeared in the Metro, the free paper that you get on the buses and the trains in Glasgow. It says, Hermes, the black and white cat of Hindon Station Twitter fame and a veteran of Metro letters pages has recently gone missing. Could local people and commuters in the Hindland area please keep an eye out for him? If seen, please alert his Twitter account, Twitter account even. He's microchipped, but has lost his name tag. And as Jeff said, it was nearly three weeks before he was found. And I have to confess, I did go out looking for him a few times, as did lots of other people. And I retweeted tweets and I shared things on Facebook. Now, some of you are thinking, it's just a cat, aren't you? Let's be honest. It's just a cat. Just one cat. But to those who know him, to his humans, his house humans as he calls them, and to the people who meet him at the hospital, some of whom are perhaps quite frightened, he is a real friend. And when he was found, this is what he sent in to the Good Deed feed in the metro, uh, which is where you get sort of all kinds of things where people have, have had problems. It says, meow. <laughs> I would like to say a huge thank you to all my Twitter friends and local humans for their help when I went missing over the festive period. Special thanks to Ross and Alana, that's the people who found him, for alerting my owners when I finally turned up. I am now home safe and sound, but grounded. 
It's a bit like some of the parables that Jesus told us, isn't it? About things or pe- that were lost and things that were found. And I think that we, like that cat, are really precious. Only it's not just that we're precious to humans. We are very precious to God. And if we get lost or wander off, God doesn't give up on us. God draws us back and usually does that through other people. Way, way back in history, there was a slave trader called John Newton who came to understand that he was loved by God (coughs) and that he was also somebody who was a bit lost. And he wrote a very famous hymn, which we're going to sing now.
Our scripture readings today begin with the Old Testament. Psalm 37, verses 1 to 8. Do not fret because of the wicked. Do not be envious of wrongdoers, for they will soon fade like the grass and wither like the green herb. Trust in the Lord and do good, so you will live in the land and enjoy security. Take delight in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. Commit your way to the Lord. Trust in him, and he will act. He will make your vindication shine like the light, and the justice of your cause like the noonday. Be still before the Lord, and wait patiently for him. Do not fret over those who prosper in their way, over those who carry out evil devices. Refrain from anger and forsake wrath. Do not fret, it leads only to evil. And then from the New Testament, Luke 15, verses 11 to 32. Then Jesus said, There was a man who had two sons. The younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of the property that will belong to me. So he divided his property between them. A few days later, the younger son gathered all he had and travelled to a distant country. And there he squandered his property in dissolute living. When he had spent everything, a severe famine took place throughout that country and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country who sent him to his fields to feed the pigs. He would gladly have filled himself with the pods that the pigs were eating and no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, "Mm, How many of my father's hired hands have bread enough and to spare? But here I am, dying of hunger. I will get up and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me like one of your hired hands. (coughs) So he set off and went to his father. But while he was still far off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion. He ran and put his arms around him and kissed him. Then the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his slaves, Quickly, bring out a robe, the best one, and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Oh, and get the fatted calf and kill it. And let us eat and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost 
and is found. And they began to celebrate. Now, his elder son was in the field, and when he came and approached the house, he heard music and dancing. He called one of the slaves and asked, What was going on? He replied, Your brother has come, and your father has killed the fatted calf because he's got him back safe and sound. Then he became angry and refused to go in. His father came out and began to plead with him, but he answered his father, Listen, for all these years I have been working like a slave for you, and I have never disobeyed your command, yet you have never given me even a young goat so that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came back, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fatted calf for him. Then the father said to him, Oh, son, you are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. But we had to celebrate and rejoice, because this brother of yours was dead and has come to life. He was lost and has been found. Here end the readings. month we're going to do something a little bit different than we usually do in our services. Insofar as each week for the next four weeks we're going to focus on the same passage of scripture but look at it from different angles. Why why are we going to do this? Well back in November quite a lot of folk were part of house groups that were exploring different aspects of public worship and I think they were, they were good experiences. We, we shared a lot, and I think we all learned a lot. And one of those workshops was on preaching. And in the course of that session, I invited the people who were there to read through the three lost and found parables in Luke's Gospel and think, well, if you were going to do a sermon or a reflection on this, what theme might you choose? 
And there were all sorts of things that came out of it. Too many just for four weeks, I have to say. We could probably do a whole year of sermons on it, but you'd be bored long before then. But there were some of them that related to the characters, particularly in the story, and it seemed like a good idea to explore those a bit further. Also, just a word about my overall title, Prodigals All. What is that all about? Well, I'm sure you know better than I do, because I had to look it up, that prodigal actually means extravagant or wasteful. And those are certainly characteristics that we see in the story in some of the people. But in contemporary Christian usage, it's often been used to refer to somebody who's become estranged from the family of the church and who then comes back, changed by their experience. And of course, we see that as well in the story. And then it's a parable about losing and finding a parable about carelessness and diligence. And those pairings seem to me to carry a sense of prodigality. So that's kind of why for the next four weeks, we're going to be looking at the story from the perspective of one of the characters. And today we're going to start with the older brother. I wonder if you, like me, have noticed just how many adverts there are on the television at the moment from energy suppliers, broadband and mobile providers, insurance companies that offer absolutely amazing offers, but only if you're a new customer. I don't know about you, but this kind of advert leaves me pretty much disgruntled. Is there no reward for loyalty? Are we so much taken for granted or so unimportant that no one's going to offer us a good deal? And is it fair that those who've got the time and the energy or even the know-how to switch around seem to get all the best deals? This kind of question, questions about loyalty and fairness, seem to arise when we read this story from the perspective of the older brother. The firstborn son in this story, or in any story, has huge expectations placed upon him from the day he's born. He's the heir, the one who will inherit the father's land, the one whose task it is to perpetuate the family line, at least in those days. And from a young age, he's been shaped for the role. He's learned to be responsible to work hard, to be loyal. He obeys the rules. He learns the role that one day will be his. He focuses on what's expected of him. Characteristics such as these are common among firstborns to this day. Firstborns are often good children who do as they're told who find themselves put in positions of responsibility from an early age, perhaps caring for younger siblings. They can also, it's true, be a bit bossy, a bit controlling, <laughs> and annoy their younger siblings. Now, I'm a firstborn. I'm a good child. I'm a rule follower. And I can be pretty bossy. I'm guessing from the response, we also have plenty of people here who are not firstborns but recognise some of those firstborn characteristics. 
Some of us naturally will identify with that character. Some of us won't. By the time we join the story, the boys are grown up. The younger son is probably well-practiced in pester power, and he's probably quite used to getting his own way since he was a little boy. And he persuades his father to liquidate his share of the inheritance, and he goes off on a grand adventure, travelling to faraway places, enjoying his freedom and living life to the max. It's great. Meanwhile, back at the ranch, as they would say in certain contexts, the responsible big brother has business as usual. There are crops to grow. There are vines to tend. There are animals to feed. And I wonder if, as he sees his carefree younger brother set off, free of all responsibilities, he feels this is a bit unjust. Why are they treated so differently? It's not that he'd ever thought about going travelling. It's not that he'd ever questioned the status quo. But now, hmm. I wonder if he found the seeds of envy or bitterness taking root in his heart as he dutifully went around his daily routines. And you know what? To be honest, if he did... I'm not sure that I blame him. It does seem to be decidedly unfair. Many, maybe most oldest children have their own tales of privileges and liberties extended to younger siblings and how unjust it felt or feels. I remember always having to go to bed at the same time as my little sister, even though she was three years younger than me. And that never felt very fair, because when I got to go later, so did she. There we go. Time passes in the story. We don't know how much, but long enough for the younger brother to run out of money. And I wonder, have rumours found their way back home about his profligate lifestyle? And I wonder what life's been like for the older brother. He's still working hard. He's still doing what's expected of him, only now he doesn't even have the help of his younger brother. And he begins to get a growing sense that his father doesn't really value him very much, because all his dad does is stand at the corner, looking into the middle distance, in the hope that the little one will come home again. It's just not fair. But hey, he gets on with it. Maybe in what we would term a passive, aggressive way, occasionally slamming down his tools or grumbling to himself. Maybe with a sense of resignation, this is just how things are going to be from now on, so he might as well just get on with it. And bitterness grows, and grudges emerge, and his own humanity is squandered along the way. Then one day... He's coming home from the fields and he is exhausted. He's hungry, he's thirsty, he wants nothing more than a nice hot meal in his bed. And as he gets near to the house, he hears music and singing. 
He didn't know anything about a party. No one's mentioned anything. So he asks the first person he sees, what's going on? And as he hears, the anger floods his aching body. This feast is in aid of his, in honour of his brother who's just returned home. No one even had the decency to come out to the field and tell him. He's the last to know, or so it seems. And so he turns away furious. He doesn't want any part in this. After a while, his father comes looking for him and starts to speak to him. Maybe he places a hand on his shoulder and it's angrily shrugged off. Maybe the delight is so obvious in his father's face that it fuels the rage within him. And as his father begs him to come in and join the party, it's all too much. The harsh words tumble out. There is hurt, there is anger, there is allegation. It's not fair. This son wasted everything. I've worked hard. I've always done as you told me. And you didn't even let me have a little meal with my friends. What is the point of me being loyal? What's the point of being responsible and hardworking when this waster comes back and you throw a banquet for him? Have you ever felt like that? I think I probably have on occasion, though not to the same extent. And I'm certainly not proud of it. Sometimes we all feel undervalued or are pushed to the limits of our patience. The story ends with the father explaining his rationale, and we're left to wonder what the older brother decided to do. And I think that was a deliberate ploy by Jesus, to leave space for those who heard the story to decide for themselves what would happen next. So who were these original hearers? Luke's gospel suggests a mixed audience of those termed sinners and tax collectors who could easily identify themselves with the younger brother and also scribes and Pharisees who find themselves cast in the role of the angry, disillusioned older brother. The religious officials are good people They're devout in their beliefs. They're loyal. They're dedicated in their practice. They don't do anything wrong. But these are people whose hearts and minds potentially become poisoned by bitterness, by self-righteousness, by a sense of injustice. What is the point of being loyal or devout if all the fuss is devoted to those dodgy characters who haven't taken seriously their inheritance or its expectations? Not easy for a Pharisee or a scribe to find themselves cast in that role. And it's not surprising, is it? Because actually we are the religious establishment of our day and it will be uncomfortable to put ourselves in that role. I'm sure many of us have attended evangelistic rallies 
or other events during the course of which somebody has shared the testimony of how they came to faith in Jesus from a particularly torrid background. As, as the audience, I said, maybe I should have said congregation, the audience drinks in every sordid detail. The tears flow and people thrill that this person has become, to coin a phrase often in used on such occasions, a trophy of grace. Now, I'm not questioning the truth of such testimonies. Far from it. But they don't move me to tears. And they generally don't fill my heart with new glimpses of God's grace. In fact, they always leave me a bit cold. Because where do I fit as a responsible, rule-following, church-going, good, oldest child who never did anything spectacularly outrageous? Don't get me wrong. Of course I have sinned. Of course I have done things that are wrong. But not in the spectacular kind of way that somebody's going to take me up on the big stage and let me tell my story so that everybody can thrill in what God has done in my life. And perhaps that does make me a bit like the Jewish religious officials in Jesus' day. And perhaps it does make me a bit like the older brother in the story. Perhaps I can look at him and see something of myself, my attitudes, my actions. And as I pondered this, I found myself recalling the times when actually, do you know what? I have had my little moment of being celebrated. My baptism, 20 odd years ago. My ordination, about 14 years ago, 13 years ago, something like that. Two induction services marking my call to pastorates. The handshakes at the BUGB and the BUS assemblies. Moments when I've been reminded of my infinite worth as viewed by God. And which remain for me as touchstones for those days when I feel a bit fed up or disillusioned or disgruntled or taken for granted or unappreciated and many of us perhaps most of us if we're truly honest have similar moments moments when we knew that God loved us and the church embraced us and moments that we treasure of course the difficulty is these are very fleeting and if we are insecure if we haven't grasped how much God loves us, then it's easy to slide into the bitterness and disgruntledness. Part of our maturing as followers of Jesus is learning to take our place within the community that is the church, to accept responsibilities and find contentment fulfilling them without needing to be recognised or affirmed for every last thing we do. As we mature in faith and grow in grace, we learn to delight in the things that delight God, even when that means setting aside our own desires to celebrate with others who've just discovered something of God's grace and God's love for them. The older brother in the story was loyal, responsible, obedient. Outwardly, he was the perfect son. What he'd lost or perhaps recklessly squandered 
wasn't outwardly visible. But he had lost qualities such as gentleness, forgiveness, hopefulness, thankfulness, generosity, joyfulness, and peace. What he needed, but he didn't realise it, wasn't a goat or a party. What he needed was a safe embrace of his father's love, which had the power to transform his, angerness, his anger, his bitterness and frustration into new life and new hope. He needed to discover a sense of self-worth not dependent on admiration or celebration. So here's one way the story might have ended. The father turned and went back into the house, saddened that his firstborn son, whom he loved dearly, had become so angry and bitter. All alone, the son stalked off back to the fields, hot tears streaming down his face and blurring his vision. Sitting alone, he replayed all that had happened over the years and especially in the last few hours. Realising that he had lost his way, that he too had behaved badly, he began to understand something of his father's extravagant celebration. Entering the house, he first sought out his father to apologise and then his brother to welcome him home. Finally, loading his plate with food, sitting with his family and joining in the banter, he experienced his own homecoming welcome in the safety of all who loved him. And there was great rejoicing in heaven. O oh Lord, your tenderness, melting all my bitterness. O oh Lord, I receive your love.
We come now to our prayers for others and for each other. And there is a song response in these prayers. Um, The cue will be as we sing together, and then we will sing the words on the sheet. I'll just ask Paul if you could play it over once for us, just so we can get the tune into our heads. So let us pray together. God, whom Jesus called Father, and to whom we can relate as a parent, we bring our prayers for others and for each other. At the start of this new year, with all that means for us, we commit ourselves to do our best to follow Jesus as we sing together. As the news media continue to be dominated by reports of violence, greed and dishonesty, we pray for those to whom power is entrusted, that they will come to understand the responsibilities that accompany status and discover the strength of peacemaking and reconciliation. Recognising our own responsibilities, however small they may seem to be, We pray that we would be makers of peace and facilitators of reconciliation as we sing together. As NHS healthcare throughout these islands is stretched to breaking point, and as expectations of what could or should be provided are called into question, we pray for all who are employed in hospitals, hospices, and healthcare settings that their voices will be heard and their tireless efforts to care for others recognised. As we, or those we love, access health care, sometimes being frustrated by waiting times, sometimes disappointed with our own experience, we pray that we would play our part to preserve this wonderful system and always to be appreciative of the care we have received as we sing together. As austerity measures continue to affect the most vulnerable in our society, as wages for many are frozen or capped, and as the so-called fat cats continue to prosper, we pray for those whose work it is to assess needs and implement systems that are clearly flawed and even unjust, that compassion, integrity and wisdom might inform all their decision-making. 
as we face our own financial challenges and make decisions about how to spend our money. We pray that these same characteristics would inform our choices as we sing together. As we gather together, a small community of your people, eternally loved by you and precious in your sight, we know that there are many among us facing challenges of health, of finance, in relationships, in employment, and in almost certainly many more. As we continue to live and grow together, we pray that our relationships will deepen, our hearts be warmed and lives enriched as we endeavour to follow our brother and saviour Jesus. Knowing that you are always with us and that your spirit guides us, we commit ourselves to love and serve each other in the year ahead as we sing together.
Bible, we read of many meals. Meals where strangers turned out to be angels. <coughs> meals that used up every last crumb of a widow's bread. Meals eaten hurriedly at the start of long journeys into the unknown. 
meals given to sick children. Meals prepared by healed mothers-in-law. Meals on hillsides and beaches. Meals in the home of wealthy tax collectors. Meals in the home of religious officials. So many meals. So many stories of significant moments in the lives of God's people. So many glimpses of God's mercy and grace. So many examples of generosity and sacrifice. So many examples of faith and life interwoven. And one story, one meal among them all, that we continue to retell. And so we come, for this is also our story. The story of our search for meaning. The story of our quest for acceptance. The story of our need for love. The story of our future hope. In an upstairs room, away from prying eyes, and among those who had shared his years of preaching and teaching, Jesus took a piece of bread, offered a blessing, broke it, and shared it with them, uttering the unforgettable words, This is my body, broken for you. Whenever you do this, remember me. And later on, as the meal drew to its close, Jesus lifted up a cup of wine, offered another blessing, and shared it with all of them, saying, This is my blood, shed for you. Whenever you do this, remember me. And so, with countless others who've walked this journey before us, and with those who have yet to take their first tentative steps along the way, we meet at this table to remember, to be refreshed, and to be renewed for whatever lies ahead of us. And so we pray. Holy God, active through the whole of history and present with us now, we thank you for the bread and wine prepared for us and for all that they mean to us. As we share... May they be a sign of our unity in Christ and a seal on the covenant that binds all of us to you. For we pray in his name. Amen.
So Jesus took the bread and he broke it. And he shared it with his friends. And he told them that when they ate bread, they were to remember him. And so as we share this bread, eating it as we receive, we too remember. As the meal drew to its close, Jesus took a cup of wine, blessed it, and shared it with everyone present. Knowing who they were, inside and out, and loving them just as much. We will retain our cups in order that we can drink together as a sign and symbol of our unity, one with each other and with all throughout all time who have sought to follow Jesus. So let us live the words we have sung, that for everyone born, there is indeed a place at Christ's table. As Jesus and his followers left the borrowed room and stepped out into the reality that awaited them, so too must we. And as we do so, we remind ourselves of the mystery of God's grace. Christ has died. Christ is risen. Christ will come again. And all will be well. And all will be well. And all manner of things will be well. Amen.
sheltered by God's gracious powers, nourished by our hope in Christ, guided by the Holy Spirit, may we step boldly into the world of which we are part to be and to speak good news now and always. Oh.